It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After a fraught few days of crisis talks... Yesterday, the health secretary announced urgent measures that he said would ease the critical problems in the NHS. We will block book beds in residential homes. This is a £200 million investment over the next three months. The prime minister has also been making positive noises. I came away from all my meetings with a renewed sense of confidence and optimism that we can get to grips with this problem. But is it enough? What has been announced is yet another sticking plaster when the NHS needs fundamental reform. With some ambulance staff set to go on strike again tomorrow, nurses on strike next week, and junior doctors filling out their strike ballots as we speak, just how desperate is the current crisis in the NHS? And how did we get here? Listen, we ask ourselves the question, is the NHS failing? I would say that the answer is that it has failed. We looked after Boris Johnson, we saved his life, and they won't even discuss pay with us. We think somewhere between three to 500 people are dying as a consequence of delays and problems with urgent and emergency care each week. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how bad are things in the NHS? It's almost a worse type of Christmas tradition for me that I end up getting lots of messages over the festive period where people start talking to me about the sort of substandard care that they're providing to their patients. And it really does hurt doctors and nurses. I'm Sean Linton, health editor at the Sunday Times, and just recently I've been trying to keep a track of what's going on in A&E departments and hospitals up and down the country as staff and patients report what looks to be one of the worst winters the health service has ever experienced. And Sean, we're going to look at the big picture of the NHS across the country. But before we do, what are the personal stories, the experiences that you've heard about in the last few weeks that have really stayed with you? Yeah, it's been quite difficult, actually, to talk to patients and families who have been getting in touch with me and also NHS staff as well. 
some of the examples that we've heard about are families who are coming to terms with the loss of a relative who they feel might have survived had an ambulance arrived quicker or had they been seen quicker in A&E. So there is some really distressing examples of poor care and substandard care, which is nobody's individual fault, but is a sign of the system kind of breaking down, really. If you needed help, would you rather be dealing with the NHS of, say, 10 years ago or the NHS of today, you know, if you were ill, if you had a problem? It's a really interesting question because... On one hand, you've got the standard metrics of NHS performance to consider as a patient. You know, will I be seen quickly enough? Will an ambulance come quickly enough? Will I get a, a scan or a GP appointment or a referral quickly enough and an operation quickly enough? And I think on many of those measures at the moment, the answer would be no, you, you would be better off being seen 10 or 12 years ago. But on the other side of the equation, Healthcare has advanced in the last 12 years and you'd want the treatments that are available now that perhaps weren't then. I think what the NHS is struggling with at the moment is the capacity to provide all of those innovations to everybody that needs them. We know that ambulance workers are on strike again tomorrow. The last time that happened, you know, the government basically sort of told everyone to try not to get injured. The government has suggested people should avoid contact sport and unnecessary car journeys just in case. But if you were to get injured or if you were to have a medical emergency of any sort and you were to dial 999 now, just talk us through what you can expect to happen in the next few hours or few days even. If people dial 999 at the moment and it's a life-threatening situation, an ambulance will be there in a relatively short period of time. The average response to those kinds of what we would call category one calls is eight, nine minutes, which is higher than it should be, but that's still pretty quick. Where we really starting to get worried is around the category two ambulance calls. These are for suspected heart attacks and strokes where there is a suspicion of something very serious going on. Now you should be seen within 18 minutes and unfortunately in many cases ambulances are not arriving for significantly longer periods, an hour average and in some cases two hours or more. That can lead to some long-term disability and it can lead to avoidable deaths and we know that that is happening. She was feeling awful and she just said, I feel like I'm dying. Dialed 999 and they told her it'd be four to five hours for an ambulance to come to her, even though her illness could have been life critical. Then when patients get to A&E, the ambulance paramedics will attempt to hand them over to the A&E department. Traditionally, within 15 minutes, maybe half an hour at a, at a push during a busy period. Those kinds of handover times are now pretty much unheard of. We are talking hours and hours now. There was one example in Shrewsbury where a patient waited 30 hours in the back of an ambulance. Our members are, are tired of going to work every day and in some cases spending the whole of their shift sat on an ambulance outside an A&E department with the same patient. We've had examples where our members have clocked off at the end of one shift to return the following day to the same patient being on that ambulance with the crew they'd left them the night before. 
And then once you get through the doors, you've been handed over, you're in the care of the A&E staff, this is where we start to see things really bite because the departments are really overcrowded. Patients are being looked after in corridors, there are no beds. Some patients are being doubled up in cubicles. Uh, There was a nurse who told us that patients could literally hold hands. They were that close to each other. So the dignity that we would come to expect from an A&E ward is, is just not there. And the reason for that is patients are waiting to get onto the wards. And that just speaks to the whole system that discharges at the back end of the hospital, people going back home or back to social care. Those discharges aren't happening. The whole thing is just kind of gridlocked. Earlier this month, we heard a senior doctor say that A&E delays are causing as many as 500 deaths a week. We cannot continue like this. It is unsafe and it's undignified. We think somewhere between three to 500 people are dying as a consequence of delays and problems with urgent and emergency care each week. That figure shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone who's been following this. The The ambulance trusts have been reporting levels of harm from delays for 18 months now. Where that figure, I think, specifically comes from is an analysis of waits in A&E departments. So there was research that showed that for patients waiting beyond five hours, the level of Uh, deaths increased in a sort of linear fashion. So the longer the waits, the more the deaths. And no one close to this has disavowed that figure at all. Most people think it's probably around the right level. And we are seeing as a country at the moment, high levels of, of excess deaths that are not linked to COVID. What's really alarming is, as you know, as you say, just before Christmas, we were registering more excess deaths than we have in, in the last two years. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just a a real sad moment that we've landed here because in a way this was very predictable. We knew this was going to happen. The ambulance delays have been going on for over 18 months since the end of the sort of first lockdowns in 2021 was when we started to see this. So the challenge was there to get ready for this winter. And I think there's a little you can do in such a short period of time, but more could have been done. If you're at the front line, you know that this is a long-standing problem. This isn't a short-term thing. The sort of things we're seeing happen every winter. And certainly I think what we're now seeing is the effect of 10 years, really, of just a managed decline in the health service. You say it's not that surprising, the figure of 500 excess deaths a week caused by delays in A&E. What's interesting is that after it was quoted, the NHS seem to come out and dispute it. Well, we don't recognise these numbers, and I think we need to be very careful about jumping to conclusions about excess mortality numbers. And their Tell us a bit about that. The NHS has to put its best face forward, and there's always politics going on behind these kinds of things. The NHS was correct in saying that these are complex issues, that other countries are seeing excess deaths, etc., and that is all true. What we do know is we are seeing, like Germany, like Italy, like Spain, we are seeing higher levels of mortality than we would expect. But we know that's due to a number of different factors. And we know that there are other things going on in terms of cardiovascular disease, and we're all a little bit less fit than we were going into the pandemic. 
the chief medical officer was yeah. saying that higher levels of cardiovascular disease because people didn't come forward because of the disruption from the pandemic. So there are a number But I think what troubled me about that was we know that ambulance trusts have been reporting these large numbers of incidents. We know that these figures are based on statistical scientific research and evidence these are real figures and I worry that we're going to hear attempts to spin and manipulate this data and discredit it. I think if we hear that we've got to say no that is spin. This is a real problem. It's happening now in our emergency departments. So it was a little bit disappointing I think. It did smack of trying to downplay what is a very serious issue and I think they will not rush to do the same again. Stepping back to get a sense of just how big the problems are across the NHS, you know, beyond A&E, which certainly seems to be in absolute crisis mode, how is the rest of the health service looking? The NHS has a capacity crisis. Away from emergency care, we have 7.2 million people on waiting lists for routine surgery and treatments and appointments. But away from hospitals, in community care and community services, GPs, they similarly are seeing a huge surge in demand from people at the moment. I don't think there's any part of the NHS which isn't overheating, if you like. And the occupancy levels in hospitals are 95% or above, and that is way above what is a safe level. Around 85% is what is deemed to be safe by the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. So I think that just speaks to the pressure on the wider system. Sean, you've said a number of times now that this is, you know, the state of the NHS at the moment is worse than you've seen it. And you've been tracking this for years. One of the things which is quite startling is that you're starting to see new problems like oxygen shortages. Tell us a bit about that. Tell us about what you found. Yeah, so some of your listeners may remember there were oxygen problems during COVID, and that was more to do with the capacity of the pipes in the actual physical buildings to deliver enough oxygen to all the COVID patients. This problem seems to be related to the portable cylinders used by paramedics and staff in A&E when patients need oxygen but aren't actually on a hospital ward and able to have it piped through the wall. What we seem to be seeing is that just due to the sheer numbers of patients being looked after on corridors, chairs, and in the backs of ambulances, we're using up our portable oxygen supplies to a point where it's become quite difficult for the main companies to replenish that, that supply. So we've seen emails that have been leaked from NHS staff from multiple trusts up and down the country where it got to a sort of bit of a crisis point sort of December, where hospitals were seeking mutual aid from each other and asking if anyone had spare oxygen. Staff were literally being told, right, okay, we need to move patients to different locations in the hospital to try and maximise the numbers who can get oxygen piped through the walls. In Liverpool, for example, at the Liverpool University Hospitals Trust, there was a message that went out to staff literally describing how they were effectively remodelling their hospital estate to move whole wards of patients around so that they could try and make use of the piped oxygen for those patients who needed it. I've not seen that sort of thing before, actually. It's quite worrying for people. You know, when you look at the detail... Each winter is worse than the previous one, and the warnings about winter every year are largely ignored. 
I remember January 2021 during the pandemic. That was pretty hellish. But if you take away COVID as a kind of extraordinary situation, I think where we are right now is the worst the NHS has ever been. It's the worst I've seen it, certainly. Coming up, are there any quick fixes that could help the struggling NHS? That's in just a moment. I'm Alice Thompson, a columnist and interviewer at The Times. It's the best job in the world. I get to interview the most extraordinary people, comment on the most fascinating news stories, travel to the most bizarre places, and inform, analyse, infuriate and entertain. We can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sometimes it can feel like the NHS has always been in a state of crisis. But as Sean's explained, what's happening now is measurably worse. So before we look at what can be done to fix it, it might help to look back to a time when the NHS did seem to work. Looking back, net satisfaction with the NHS peaked in 2010. There is definitely times when the NHS was meeting all of its performance standards. The waiting times for elective operations and A&E departments, those metrics only started to be missed really around the sort of 2014-15 period. And before Labour were out of office, the public satisfaction with the NHS was at a peak. It is this party that has made record investment in the National Health Service. It's this party that has delivered better waiting times, lower waiting lists, improved cardiac and cancer care, better accident emergency departments, and his policies would put all of that at risk. So we do know that the NHS can deliver, and that delivery came after a sort of average 6% a year investment by the Labour government. We're due a general election in the next 18 months. Whoever wins that election, they're going to have to adopt a similar approach to return to performance. And just talk us through what's happened since then. You know, is this all about investment? Is it all about money? The lack of investment since 2010 under austerity, that really did weaken 
the NHS. And we've had a long-term policy problem in the UK where we've reduced the number of inpatient beds, but not invested similarly in community services, for example. So we're, we've taken away the capacity of hospitals, but we're still driving most of our patients into hospitals. The hospital should be there only for when you're most seriously ill. An example of how we've got this so badly wrong, we've halved the number of district nurses since 2010, which is the exact opposite of what we really need. And the issue now that we've got with funding is that although funding's increased latterly since 2019, it's still only really back to where the average has been since 1948. So there's no real transformative funding to actually move things forward. We're still just playing catch up, I think. And you've got to remember that the population is growing and it's sicker and it's living longer with more conditions. We just haven't invested in a way that's led to us having sufficient beds and staff to cope with the demand that we're seeing. So we have one of the lowest levels of beds in Europe. We've sown the seeds of our own crisis here and that's what we're seeing now. You know, one of the things that will be impacting its performance at the moment is the strikes. I thought people were going to hate us. People were going to say, you're nurses, for goodness sake, what are you doing? But I think the majority of people understand and support us. We've had some already. We've got more to come in January. The largest nursing strike in NHS history, with nurses in England, Wales and Northern Ireland taking part in industrial action. Thousands of ambulance staff, paramedics and 999 call handlers have voted in favour of strikes if an NHS pay increase is not agreed with the union. How much of an impact have they had on the running of the NHS? And is there an end in sight? Ahead of NHS strikes, everybody's worried about the impact. This was the same for junior doctors when they went out on strike in 2016. Actually, what we saw was an odd little uplift in performances. Lots of senior consultants were on the front line. And actually, it wasn't a disaster. And that was similarly the case with the recent ambulance strikes and the nursing strikes other staff step up and they're able to do that on a sort of short-term basis it's not a long-term solution and and so naturally the unions are being forced to escalate their action and that 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 raises the stakes a little bit and it starts to test the system a little bit this disruption is going to be significantly worse health leaders feel they cannot guarantee patient safety and and i know that health leaders do not want to be in this position but they have to tell it like it is we expect that junior doctors, if they vote for strike action in a ballot that's, that starts this month, they could well go out for three days and that would include not covering any emergency care, which is quite a significant move by junior doctors and would put the NHS under significant pressure. And I think really the message has to be to the government that it's got to somehow find a way to mitigate this. It's got to find a way to negotiate with the unions. They're both kind of staring down the barrel of a gun at each other and caught in the middle as the NHS and patients. If you look at similar health systems to ours, how are they coping? Are our problems unique or is everybody struggling? There are pressures in healthcare at winter, regardless of of which country you're looking at. So Australia had an extremely bad flu season. 
health experts are pointing to data from Australia, which is nearing the end of its worst flu season in five years. Similarly across Europe. A wave of viral infections has pushed Germany's children's hospitals to their limit. This winter, doctors' practices and children's hospitals were bursting at the seams. Some clinics. But when you look at things like excess deaths, the UK does seem to be an outlier. And I have to ask the question there is that because the NHS is failing more people than perhaps health systems are in other countries? We do know that we have fewer beds, fewer doctors, fewer nurses and scanners and things like that than other Western European countries. That will mean that we go into every winter weaker than they do and our ability to respond will potentially be worse than theirs. Should we be looking at different models? I get frustrated when I see people sort of blithely talking about scrapping the NHS and moving to an insurance model or a private healthcare model, as if that will be a panacea to all of our problems. When people say that, what they tend to just stop there. And what I'd like to know is, okay, well, what next? How would you actually get to that finished position? The OECD has said that the NHS is one of the most efficient ways of providing healthcare. What we need to start thinking about is, are we spending enough? And you never get that kind of conversation from politicians. They could just trot out big numbers, but it's not in the context of whether it's enough. So we're spending 20 billion more on the National Health Service uh, between now and 2011. What we've done across this parliament is 12.7 billion pounds extra for the NHS. We're going to ensure there's a 10-year plan for the NHS, 20 billion pounds more. We're providing an additional 3 billion pounds of funding to the NHS in England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland will also receive additional funds. we'd matched EU spending since 2010 on a per capita basis, the NHS would have had an extra 40 billion a year to spend. I would like to try that first before we start messing around with the fundamental model of care, which I don't think the public would ever support in any event. I know you've recently written a, a, a piece about the 10 fast ways to improve the NHS. Just talk us through some of those. So we spoke to a number of different experts in the sector trying to think of their ideas. And, you know, there were some really interesting ones. The greater use of pharmacists in managing and even prescribing medication to take some of the load from GPs. The British Geriatric Society talked about the, the problem of over-prescribing and over-medication use amongst some patients. There's 4 million patients in the country taking more than eight medicines. And Apparently, there are significant numbers who end up with these drugs interacting with each other and not necessarily actually delivering a benefit to the patient, in some cases making them worse. And so they talked to me about the fact that there are cases where patients will recover the ability to walk and they'll see a mental improvement when experts, geriatricians and others carry out what are called structured medicine reviews. That could be a way to really kind of improve quality of life for a significant number of people. Another great idea, which I thought was, was good and included in the article, was from Jim McManus, the president of uh, the Association of Directors of Public Health. And what he talked about was 
basically trawling patient records to identify patients who were at risk of needing an ambulance or a hospital admission in the next few months and going out to them and checking their medications, their blood pressure, their health generally, but also doing a kind of house check as well. You know, are there any trip and fall hazards in the house? If we can do those kinds of things, we could prevent lots of admissions. And I think, you know, those ideas are not new and the people in the NHS are actually doing them in some areas. But what we need is a kind of uniform across the country approach to try and tackle some of these things. Is it surprising that they haven't been put into action across the country earlier? I think one of my abiding frustrations with the NHS as a health journalist is the difficulty in getting what works spread easily around the country. There is a tendency of individual NHS organisations to want to reinvent the wheel and do things their way in their locality. And it's quite interesting when you think about it that the NHS is a national health service, except it isn't. It's split up into hundreds of different organisations each with their own politics, leadership. I'm not for a moment suggesting we should start mandating everything from Westminster, but it's one of one of my biggest frustrations that things that we know work just aren't adopted everywhere at the same time. You've said a number of times today that the NHS is, you know, worse than you've ever known it. Are you personally quite worried about this? You know, are you are you telling relatives, for example, you know, people who are who are elderly or perhaps have um, underlying illnesses, you know, are you, are you quite worried about how this plays out? As a journalist, when you do your work, you can't but think, well, how would this affect me in my situation? And, you know, I'm fortunate that I don't have family that rely on the NHS at the moment, but I would struggle to advise them at the moment if they asked me how could they be seen quickly. And it is something to worry about. If you've got elderly relatives and people who have a long-term condition, then you are undoubtedly going to have this in the back of your mind. And I think that's reflected in the public polling that shows the concern about the NHS is rising significantly. And I think that speaks to that anxiety. Yesterday, the government laid out its plans for the NHS in England. They're going to spend up to £250 million, most of it on beds in care homes and even hotels, to try to free up more space in hospitals for patients. We will block book beds in residential homes. This is a £200 million investment over the next three months. Our second investment today is more physical capacity in and around emergency departments. Our 50 million investment will focus on modular support this year. And we Pay discussions were back on the table too yesterday, as ministers met unions to try and prevent the planned strikes. When it comes to pay, we've always said we want to talk about things that are reasonable, that are affordable and responsible for the country. But the unions were unimpressed. The government have missed yet another opportunity to put this uh, right. The one union did at least seem to think that the government would increase pay this year to help health workers with a cost-of-living crisis. The Secretary of State is very, very clear that resolving this dispute uh, means not just talking about pay for the next period, but actually pay for the current uh, pay year. For the time being, 
some strikes are still going ahead, as far as we know. And in a list of things we don't yet know, one final question that still hasn't been answered is whether or not the Prime Minister even uses the NHS, or whether he relies on a private GP. The Prime Minister might not rely on the NHS, but millions of ordinary people do. They are sick and they are tired of waiting. It's a distraction from what the real issue is, and the real issue is, are we making sure that there's high-quality healthcare available for the country? You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Sunday Times health editor, Sean Linton. You can find all of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Olivia Case. The executive producers were Kate Ford and James Shield, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.